Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks on Monday, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest for the segment we call Corona Calls, Dr. John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Schwartzberg. Good morning. So the the news this week is on the public health policy front. Uh, There is not formal notification of a decision-making proceeding, but about this time last week, the Washington Post first reported, uh, based on anonymous sources, that the CDC is considering changing its isolation guidelines to basically what California recently adopted, uh, which is that the CDC, again, according to anonymously sourced reporting, uh, will consider telling people it is safe to resume contact with others once they have been fever-free for 24 hours without the assistance of medication. Um, Assuming that that is, in fact, what the CDC is considering, what do you think of the merits of that as as guidance and as policy? Well, I've been giving this a lot of thought uh, since actually since January 9th, when the California Department of Public Health announced a change in isolation guidelines, which from what we've heard from the leak from the CDC is very, their, their plans sound like they may be very similar to what we're now doing here in California. That is, as you were saying, letting people uh, are saying that it's okay to go back and and be with other people after you've had COVID, as long as you're improving 24 hours without fever and your symptoms are improving. California does say that for a full 10 days since you were diagnosed with COVID or became symptomatic with COVID, you need to wear a good mask, an N95, a KN95, for example. That we haven't heard from in terms of the leak from the CDC, whether that's going to be included. This is the problem, of course, with leaks. We really don't know the what their policy is going to be or when they're going to change it. All of that said, Brian, I have my foot in both camps. Sorry, I can't be definitive here. From the perspective of California's uh, new guidelines, There are really two major arguments that I see. One is that people are either not testing or they're going back and mingling with other people as soon as they're feeling better. That's how people are doing things now. So from a public health standpoint, we need to acknowledge that and take the perspective of risk reduction or harm reduction. And that is we're going to Uh, say that this is what people are doing and we're going to give them information about how to to keep others safe who are around them when they go back into uh, other communities. The other argument for this is that is more of an equity argument. And that is there's an awful lot of people, there are an awful lot of people who have to go to work. They have to have their kids back in school because they either can't afford or daycare is just not going to work out and both parents have to work, et cetera. So 
the reality is that people are having their kids go back to school or people are going back to work as soon as they're feeling better. And they have to do that. So there's this equity issue that for a lot of us who can work from home, um, it's fine to stay away for 10 days. But for some people, they just can't do that. I think those are the two big arguments. There are other more nuanced issues, but I think those are the two big arguments for what we're hearing leaked from the CDC and what California and Oregon, by the way, are doing. The argument against that is really a pretty straightforward argument, and that is the science shows us that people continue to shed live virus that can transmit well beyond um, three days or four days or five days, even in many cases. Um, people actually continue to shed live virus enough that we think can transmit on average up to maybe up to eight days. So if somebody gets a mild case of COVID, or if they have an asymptomatic case of COVID, that is they don't have symptoms, but they've been diagnosed with COVID by, let's say the home test, um, they're gonna be going back out into society right away at a point when an awful lot of these folks have COVID, have enough live virus in their secretions that they can spread it. Now they're supposed to be wearing a mask, which will help a great deal. They're supposed to be wearing a good mask, which will help a great deal, but it does put other people who are around them at risk. And so that's why I really am sort of torn here. Um, the, in the ideal world, it would be nice to be, keep people away who have COVID away from other people for a period of time where they're not gonna be contagious when they go back and enter society. What's realistic is probably not that today. That's not the way people are living or conducting themselves. So public health has to be realistic. So that's, that's where I am, Brian. I'm sorry I can't be more definitive. Well, explain the concept of public health having to be realistic. My understanding is these are guidelines, not orders. Um, surely you would want the guidelines themselves just to be as clear as possible about what the evidence-based best practices are um, so that the people who care about those best practices have something clear to follow. I, I don't see the logic in kind of bending the guidelines to suit what the public's already doing. I know, and I don't disagree with you. Sorry for the double negative, but I think you're, that's a very important point. Um, the argument I made on this show um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, was pretty much exactly that. And that is public health needs to tell people exactly what the science is showing us and people and give advice based upon that. That's a very reasonable argument. Um, of course, CDPH does give guidelines in regards to that in the sense of saying that it's still possible to be contagious, so you need to wear a good mask. Of course, the problem is that I think an awful lot of people, as soon as they're feeling better, are going back into society and not wearing a mask, much less a good mask. So this is the problem. I agree with you. Or some people are never isolating in the first place. I mean, the, the other thing that the guidelines do uh, is they give someone who is under pressure to report back to work while sick because the workplace is shorthanded something to point at saying uh, the CDC says I shouldn't. Uh, that, that seems kind of important both from, you know, a worker's rights perspective, <laughs> right, from protecting the health of everyone else at that workplace. Uh, 
and and also a public health perspective because workplaces are are you know spaces where people congregate and can rapidly amplify spread. Right, but the most recent data that I've seen is that less than twenty five percent of workplaces in the United States uh, offer paid sick leave, and those that do have a maximum of ten days per year, um, or at least most of those. So people are really forced to go back to work early, regardless. Mm. Although paid sick leave uh, is required for everyone, probably not in sufficient amounts, but everyone on a W-2 here in California now. Um, Dr. John Swartzberg, maybe we should move on to some of the questions that have come in from our listeners. Uh, we won't be opening the phone lines today because it's the, the first day of KPFA's winter fund drive and we need those phone lines free for fundraising. But we have a bulging inbox with questions from our listeners. Uh, the first comes from Hugh, who does not mention a location, and writes, Dr. Schwartzberg, it is my understanding that the COVID vaccine does not prevent one from catching COVID, but usually reduces the severity of the outcome. Paxlovid is also supposed to reduce the severity of the outcome of an infection. If one is eligible for Paxlovid, I'm 73, Hugh writes, what is the value of future vaccinations? A great question by Hugh. Um, the most recent data, to give a more specific tone to this, the most recent data we have on the uh, updated vaccine that became available in um, early October is that out to four months now, it has 54% efficacy against preventing symptomatic disease. And that's pretty good. Um, that's any symptoms at all. So it is preventing a lot of symptoms. So people getting over half of the population gets this, not getting any symptoms at all. But Hugh's right. The major role for these vaccines is to prevent serious illness that really stresses the healthcare system. And then of course, is terrible for the individual. It prevents hospitalizations and it prevents deaths. If you combine that, as Hughes mentioning, with the use of an antiviral drug like Paxlovid, the risks of being hospitalized and dying from COVID today are very, very low, even in somebody Hughes age at 73, which is a higher risk age. So to get to Hughes' question, what's the value of future vaccines? The answer is really twofold. One is this virus is mutable. That is, this virus has shown us how easily it can change. And when I, what I mean by change is primarily increased transmissibility and immune evasion, ability to evade the immunity that people have either from previous infection or the vaccine. And so without an updated vaccine, if for the, what we see here, for example, in a year or six months, um, the previous vaccinations may not be giving us the kind of help that we really want from them. And the second issue is that these vaccines are not long-lived. This is one of the things that we really need um, is a vaccine that can we can get it once and it's gonna be good for a long period of time. But even if the virus doesn't change, our immunity, our protection against hospitalization and death does wane over time. And that's why we need an updated vaccine at this point. So 
Unfortunately, I think we're on tap for at least annually getting the um, updated COVID vaccines until we find a way around this dilemma of immune evasion and waning immunity from the vaccine. Maybe I can pick up on Hugh's question and, and ask a, a couple of basic things about the state of the data. Um, is the, the protective effect of Paxlovid additional to any protective effect from vaccination? In other words, if uh, being vaccinated reduces your chances of dying from COVID by 90% and getting Paxlovid uh, reduces your chances of dying from COVID by 90%, is being vaccinated and getting Paxlovid when you're sick going to reduce your chances by 99%? We really don't have great data on that in terms of how much Paxlovid adds on to that kind of protection in somebody who's up to date with their vaccines. So um, I don't have an answer for that. Intuitively, we know that both work. They both work very differently. And so one would expect an additive property. And we've seen that with some of the studies where Paxlovid added on to vaccination does increase significantly the efficacy. It's not going to increase it like you're saying from 90% and then another 90%, but it does significantly add to your protection. I guess the other question would be, because it, it sounds like, at least when I'm reading into Hugh's question, is should I not bother getting boosted and just rely on the fact that I'm eligible for Paxlovid? I think maybe it, it's worth talking through the real world constraints um, on getting the Paxlovid in a timely fashion. Because uh, we've gotten lots of letters from people who've had uh, trouble getting a prescription out of their physician, often because uh, they're not testing positive right away, even though they've, they've started symptoms. Right. Um, before I address that, I want to just emphasize what I was saying before, and that is, uh, I'll give myself as an example. I got the updated vaccine in October, I'm well protected for six months. Those six months are coming due pretty soon. And I'm not going to have nearly the protection from that vaccine in six months that I had at two or three months after the vaccine. So I would want a, an updated vaccine just for that. Secondly, I don't want to get sick. Um, uh, even if it's not going to land me in the hospital, uh, I don't want to get sick at all. And I don't uh, I want to have the maximum protection against that. So I think those are two issues. But Brian, you're bringing up a really important point, and that is the use of Paxlovid. What's the real world experience? And unfortunately, the real world experience is that the vast majority of people who are candidates for that medication, either by age or underlying disease, are not getting it. There have been some very disturbing studies in nursing homes around the United States showing that a very small percentage of people in nursing homes, almost all of whom are candidates for Paxlovid, they're not getting it. We're talking about percentages in the 20 percentile range of getting the, getting the, the medication. And that's just horrific when we know we have a drug that can keep people who are in nursing homes out of the hospital and from dying. So they're not getting it. They're not getting it for some reasons. One you mentioned, which was uh, oftentimes the test is negative initially. We know that the test, you have to repeat the test sometimes two or three times before it becomes positive. So it takes a number of days for it to become positive. And we know that Paxlovid doesn't appear to have much efficacy after five days from when you became ill. So there can be a pretty tight window there of getting a prescription for the medication. 
Another reason is that doctors aren't prescribing it to the extent that, frankly, doctors should be. Uh, I'm generalizing, of course, but an awful lot of physicians are saying, well, you know, you're not very sick. And let me dilate on that point. What we've seen with COVID is that oftentimes you're not very sick for up to a week or eight and sometimes nine days, and then you crash. That is, the symptoms are fairly mild, and then you can become very ill very quickly around seven, eight, or nine days. And so if you call your doctor and say, doc, I tested positive, but you know, I feel pretty good. I just have a little runny nose and my throat's maybe a teeny bit sore. Frequently doctors are saying, you know, don't bother with the Paxlovid, you've got a mild case. But we don't know what that next five days or six days are gonna bring. And so I think those are the, uh, that's a big problem as well. And then of course, um, fortunately, right now, Paxlovid, everybody can still get, um, even if you don't have insurance through a government plan, you can still get the drug without cost to you. But that's not going to always be the case, we don't think. Uh, and the drug is very expensive. I think it's around $1,400, $1,500 if you get it over the counter. Hmm. So lots of hurdles. Don't assume you will get the pills in a timely fashion uh, in, in a way that would reflect the results that came from the clinical trials. Um, Dr. Schwartzberg, we should leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.